Hey everybody, welcome to Weekend Superstars. I'm John McHugh, it's my co-host. George Moulton. And before I introduce our first guest tonight, I have a story I want to tell about our friendship and how we got to know each other originally, because it's pretty interesting, and I think it's interesting, but uh, like I told Doug, when we had Doug on the show, of course I've been listening to the bunch my whole life, but I've never seen you play at that point. And I'd only had, you know, maybe a few pictures from the terrace room. But when I moved to Lexington, I got the job at Cinerama, and I would do graphics every now and then over at Golf Tents. And I put logos on the tent tops and all that stuff. And I met this guy named Bob. And to me, all I knew was it was this guy named Bob. The tent guy. The tent guy. Yeah. And that went on for, what, two or three years, maybe? Yeah. And then, uh, I think it was 08, when you were all about to have a reunion, I went over to Ernie's house. And Ernie was like... Uh, we're uh, we're coming in on this week, and uh, we're going to do a rehearsal over at Golf Tents. I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well, that's Bob's place. And I was like, yeah, I know Bob. I was like, I've, I've done some work with Bob. He goes, well, that's Bullet. And I'm going, you're shitting me. <laughs> because I knew everybody, but Bob was never referenced as Bob. As Bob, okay. For years, for 20-some years, all I knew was Bullet. So those times we were working together, I had no idea. There's a lot of people that know me as nothing but Bullet. And that <laughs> blew my mind. And then I was like, well, then that, I think it was about then that we actually started to like talk about that stuff. And then we really started to connect. And now I work for you. There we go. <laughs> What's up, boss man? <laughs> Welcome to the show, Bob Goff. So where did the word Bullet come from? Right. Tell us there, that. There was a friend of mine back during the late 80s there was a hairdresser in Lexington Jerry Spry and he did the hair of Loggins and Messina and Exile and everybody and everybody had this hairstyle like David Cassidy it poofed up in the top it kind of came down in a shag in the bottom and of course I got it then everybody else did and went to a friend and said hey bullet head <laughs> and it went from that to all of a sudden it was bullet bullet and then all the musicians went to Michael Mattingly and got perms and all that yeah. done. And now nobody's not enough hair to give a shit about, so nobody <laughs> cares. But that's where Bullet, it came from Bullet Head. What about, what wow. year was that? Oh, gosh, no idea. Late 80s, probably. Yeah. So I, I thought it went back further than that. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, I had, I mean, they always referenced Doug and Bob, or Rex and, you know, Vince, Ernie. And Bullet. And Bullet, Bullet. Yeah. Bob was never on my radar until and, we actually had already worked together for at least two or three years. And to a lot of people, still, they would have no idea. Right. That's well, my name. I didn't know Puddin's first name first two years I played with him. And I still <laughs> I still refuse to call him by that. I was thinking, name. what is it? Garrick. Garrick. Garrick, that's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was a... And then, you know, working with you now it's been our relationship's been a very interesting story to it you know and then i knew ian from the rock scene but i didn't know his connection to you i did because i didn't put the golf name right. just didn't register yeah. to me so then i ended up knowing him through, through my old rock bands then i knew bob from the bunch and then it all just kind of came together and it was a really cool to me it was really cool. cool and it used to be for ian are you bob Goff's son and now People say to me, are you Ian Goff's father? You're right. Yeah, so right. it's gone full circle. Yeah. So where, when did you get started? When did you start playing music? Whew, I started playing music when I was in the sixth grade. Really? I played trumpet in the school band, and uh, I would come home at nights 
And instead of practicing all my scales and the songs for the next day, I was breaking down songs with people like Herb Alpert, the Tijuana Brass, this is what the trumpets did, what the you know, trombones did. I was learning harmony. Yeah. And I wanted to be a band director. <clears throat> I was going to be the leader of the band. Mm-hmm. And then about that time, the Beatles hit. And we know what happened. And at that young age, I knew Paul McCartney was going to get laid a whole lot more than Herb Alpert. <laughs> I sold that trumpet. <laughs> and so we became rock and roll. Tell, tell me a little bit about that because I'm a, I'm a huge Beatles fan. But that's one thing that I missed out on. That had already happened by the time I came around. I just had the music. The whole Ed Sullivan show and what it did. Because everyone I know from that era, that's the moment. That was the moment the lights came on. Like, what was it about that that just, what did you see, what did you hear that was so mind-blowing to make you want to do that? Even before they came, there were people like me who wanted, they knew that they had music in them. You're, you're going to be a musician. You were you're on the cusp something. of it. But then all of a sudden, and you know, and not just me, all, everybody who saw them realized that a change had happened. It was a change in the way they looked, the way they sounded. We had gone from Elvis and the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons and really structured music. And these guys came out and just played all of this, what rock and roll was getting ready to become. And it was just different. And, and, you know, it's really hard to put your finger on it, but everybody just knew that the uh, thermometer had changed. Right. Yeah. And Did it just seem everything like was going to be different. <clears throat> this is achievable by seeing that? Like, like they made it more real? Like, I, I, this I is a know. real goal yeah, that we can look at? I don't know. You just knew that you wanted to go that direction. And then it became, just like America, 50-50. There was the Elvis lovers, and there was the yeah. Beatle lovers. Yeah. And there was, you know, ah, long hair, you know, da-da-da. And mm-hmm. so there was that, but there was just a movement. I was always jealous of it because I've known the Beatles since day one. So I never had that moment of like, oh, I heard them for the first time because they've just always been here. And I've mm-hmm. always been jealous because yeah. people talk about that moment being yeah. so And your epic. parents brought you in all that. Right, right. But it's like, I wonder what it was like to actually see it, you know? You know, I think they would have to be, you know, you were talking about kind of mentioned it. They, they were really in my opinion, and this is coming from not a huge Beatles fan. I'm not a Beatles right, yeah. hater, but I, I'm I'm the Elvis guy. I'll, yeah. I'll go on that side. But they were kind of a bridge between what, you know, Elvis, those guys, that was kind of the birth, the, the, the embryo of rock and roll, what it was starting to be coming from the gospel stuff. And, and to me, the Beatles were always like the bridge from what it started as to kind of what it ended up being in the in the late '60s mm-hmm. and early '70s when you started having yeah, more of the, point. the harder stuff all come right. in there, but they will all tell you even people like Ozzy Osbourne, you know, from Sabbath in those days, his influence was the Beatles. Sure. So they they were like the this is something different. It was they a connected bridge everybody. From, yeah. yeah. And to me, Elvis was the bridge between R and B, Jackie Wilson, yeah. and all of the Sam Cooke, and all of these people, yeah. and the white people. And yeah. Pat Boone mm-hmm. took that, and yeah. a lot of you know white artists did, but Elvis just did it better yeah, right, right, than right. anybody because he was more true to the grit. It was more who he was, and yeah. those other guys were just doing their act. And that's, they were doing, that's just what doing Elvis an act. was. Yeah. But yeah, that's who Elvis was, but he was that. 
bridge, and it's real interesting. Yeah. I read a thing from Ray Charles one time. They were, you know, what do you think about Elvis? And he said he was a punk. <laughs> <laughs> he stole all these moves from Jackie Wilson. And everything. He had nothing. He said, no, yeah. I'm going to lose a lot of, you know, fans right. over this, but he had nothing good to say about Elvis, wow. which I thought was interesting. It, uh, yeah. but I'm sorry, that's still Ray Charles, and yeah. his point is valid. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, it was yeah. what a black man thought yeah. about somebody coming yeah. in and doing that. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, after seeing the Ed Sullivan show, is that why you play bass? It, like, did Paul do it for you? Why bass? Well, you said you started on trumpet. Is that right? Uh, I played trumpet, and I was I was a good little trumpet player. And of course, I was you know playing. Maybe I wasn't even playing guitar at that point. Maybe I got a guitar after that. You know, it's just hard to go back. 60 years or whatever oh, yeah. and just remember what that moment was yeah. but there was a moment mm -hmm. where it was oh my god this it, it all changes right here and you know and then the next day at school you know did you see it everybody's mind you know yeah. little minds <laughs> were blown yeah. right from that yeah. but it truly was wow i think everybody has that moment whether it's, it's you know sometimes it might not be that mind-blowing i mean you know, I've told you about my my moment was at the Maysville Expo Fair, the first time I ever saw Conway Twitty live. And it wasn't so much what he did, but the reaction of what the people in the crowd, how they reacted to him. Mm -hmm. You know, and he, because to me it was so simple. He just walks out on stage, hello, hello darling, darling <laughs> and they, they lose their minds. And yeah. they, from that day, I was like, I want to be that guy. Oh, there's no doubt. Every body who loves music who plays music has had that moment yeah and you know it didn't matter i mean it could have been the foo fighters it could be anybody yeah. and that's why well, this is the best time for music because it's just the time that you relate to and the time right. that affects yeah. you mm -hmm. and they were just you know the one and then the whole british invasion was just it was just group after group after group yeah, yeah. that all you know it, it, was a, it was a great time you remember your first gig first paying gig Band gig or band gig? Either. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, the first band gig, I played drums. And it was yeah, for... Yeah, Bobby, play everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was for a, a school, uh, the, the get-together at school where all the classes are out there. Can't think of the word. And my brother was a singer. I played drums. The guitar player played open E strum. <laughs> and they had one guitar player who could actually play chords. We did House of the Rising Sun and saw her standing there. Didn't have a bass or anything. Yeah. I didn't go to bass until I was probably a junior in high school. You know, nothing was happening. And I met a guy in Taylor's. I met him at a basketball game, Glenn Lawson, who played with J.D. Crow. Okay. I don't know if you ever you share, share my familiar. blanket yeah. album. Yeah. That's what he did, and then he went on with Spectrum with uh, Bela, and okay. uh, I can't think of the other players in that. But it was you know that it was kind of almost like a new grass kind of band. They right. were a real hip bluegrass thing, and Glenn yeah. was really good. And you know I'm from Bloomfield, and him from Taylorsville, 17 miles away, and his family was really good. Yeah. So, you know, we played with them, and they needed a bass player, and uh, I had no idea, and went to the pawn shop and bought an old Gibson, looking some kind of a Les Paul-looking bass that had a bastardized neck on it and had an old K-amp for an upright bass uh, for my amp, and I just sit there, and I became a bass player. 
Wow. Because that, that, that's, that's the only gig I had. <laughs> K, K was the first guitar I ever had. It was a K. Yeah. Oh, everybody. Yeah, hey, yeah. K. Yeah. That was popular. Oh, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen one in years. No. Not no. not one that, I, you know, out to buy anywhere. No. Yeah. I would think they might even be collectible. Probably. Well, I like the old silver. I got an old silver tone bass. Yeah. That game with the amp and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I would bet if you found one old enough, I'd say those K's, some of them would be probably high I mean, I never had one that played worth a dime, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that doesn't mean that anything. That doesn't mean anything. No. I, I think old K upright basses are still... Pretty good? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a Kurt Chapman question. Well, did, you, did you ever play any upright basses? Not did for they? real, but yeah. I've gone in there and just played around on one. Yeah. Went to, uh, down at the old Greetings downtown years ago when Jack Patty was playing, and he had a bass player who was a drinker, and he had passed out before the gig started. And they said, can you play? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I've never played an upright bass. I said, yeah, I can do that. And so I muddled my way through a set of it. And then he sobered up for the second set. I was getting good. I was gonna, you know, ready to play it then. I said, sorry that he came back. <laughs> uh, so when, uh, when you got playing and all this, uh, was the goal... So I'm going to go out and get a record deal or don't want to do this for a living or was it just I, I just love doing it kind of thing from at the 6th grade on I was going to be a rock star yeah I was going to be on that stage I was going to be playing that I mean it was never to be a backup musician with somebody I was going to be in the band it was going to yeah. be Exile the Eagles the Beatles yeah. right. you know I was going to be that because you know I wrote music I you know had the ideas and everything yeah, there was no doubt in my mind. You said you wanted to be a band leader. Yeah. You ended up doing that with the bunch for sure. Did you do that before that? Oh, I've done it, yeah, with Showboat and yeah. every band I've ever been in, Daddy's yeah. Car and People's Choice. Yeah, that's just my, my gift is to put together a good tight band. Well, see, that's another thing. When we talked to Doug, you know, I mentioned the show was so important. And uh, it wasn't just the songs or, you know, whatever, but like every time I've seen you all play, which has only been in the last 15 years but going back i'm sure it was even better but the show was always just as important as everything else i mean you all had choreographed moves i mean there was segments i mean was that all you or was it a unit well like how did you all come about doing what i bring into it is just let's rehearse let's rehearse yeah let's rehearse and just I I, I'd be in a be, band with Bob. No, <laughs> we'd be firing. Them. People either love me or hate me because I just beat them over the head just to keep doing it until we get it right. Yeah, you yeah. know, until it sounds good and the harmonies, mm-hmm. the same thing is just to do it, and the rest of it, you know, falls in. You know, it's easy to be lucky when you work real hard. Yeah, and then that's the whole my whole strategy. Yeah, it's just to practice and practice with showboat. Pre bunch, when is yeah, that was about? before the bunch, and that was during the disco era. Yeah, and that was the same kind of band. There was a friend of mine, Rod Cunningham. We had an entertainment agency, and uh, with Tony Conway. If anybody knows Tony, he books Alabama now, yeah. and he's with Buddy Lee. He was the president of Buddy Lee Attractions in Nashville. Big guy down there, and uh, we had an agency, and we were booking tours to Cuba and Puerto Rico. And so we just said, you know, let's put a band together and go. And so we did. And from some of those members, we formed Showboat. 
and then we played the Embers of Redneck Bar, and then went over to the Nightlife of Redneck Bar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> then we uh, went to Contract Lounge, which was a really nice bar, and we traveled around the Holiday Inn circuit. Uh, Paul Osborne was in there. I mean, a great sax player, Steve DiMartino, a great drummer. And the rest of us were just, you know, pedestrian musicians that worked our butts off. And we were doing like the theme to Rocky and Star Wars and all these oh, wow. big disco, big songs. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, we were so tight and we had a really good front man, Rod Cunningham. When you walked in the door, it's, hey, Bill, Susan, where y'all been? I mean, people just loved him and it just worked. Yeah. For a lot of years. That was, uh, how many piece band was that? The six piece. Six, yeah. Well, maybe seven, because then we also had Teresa Osborne and a, another girl singer. I posted some pictures. I tried to find yeah. as many as I could. Yeah, and, and I hadn't I, seen some of those pictures. What was cool is uh, you had, every, everyone had outfits. They yeah. had like matching outfits. Oh, you yeah. Mean, At I that mean, time, everybody yeah. did. That's almost unheard of now. Oh, yeah. And I miss yeah. that. Like, I think that would be oh, cool. Oh, well, everything's so, unheard yeah. of. We played six nights a week. <laughs> That's unheard That's of. That's unheard of, now. yeah. We made a living doing it. That's unheard <laughs> yeah. of now. When, uh, when you all decided to put together matching outfits, did you have them made? Did you just buy them and like them? How, how did you do that? Because I never experienced a band that we all wore the same thing. Uh, but I've always wanted to. <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Yeah, I had nothing to do with that. Paul Osborne picked that stuff. The first outfit we had, we went up to some tux place in Cincinnati and we had these red brocade jackets with white with black piping mm-hmm. and black pants and I love to have that jacket now. Oh yeah. yeah. It's so freaking ugly. It would be so <laughs> cool now. You didn't have any of those pictures in there. The other ones we had made. Yeah, you, you know, had a made. The, it was a different thing. You know, Ozzy was really short. Uh, Rod was big. I'm tall, and so you know, with all those different sizes, yeah. we just you know we met somebody and it kind of made us outfits. Well, that, that's always been a huge pet peeve of mine. Um, is like, I've always felt you should look when you walk in the room, you should look like you're in the band. We don't wear matching outfits or anything, right. but I always try to go well, at least one notch above. But it seems like <clears throat> most people just walk right off the street and get up on stage anymore, and that bugs the hell out of me. Well. I, I disagree with you in the sense that I would never want to go back and wear the outfits that we wore. But right. you sh- the band should always look different than the, the crowd. Audience. Not better, yeah. but different. You yeah. need to look, have a little rock and roll to you in every aspect. If you're on stage, right. you've got to stand apart. Yeah. Right. A little yeah. bit. Because that's always, you know, like it's that's. I don't, that's been gone for years. I mean, I don't see anyone really no, going that maybe. extra mile. Maybe the front guy. But the band as a yeah. whole, you just don't see it's, that. It's kind of that thing where you know, if you want to be if you if you want to be perceived a star, then you've got to look the part, not just you know you, you got to have the whole. You got to think you're a star. Thing. Yeah, you're you got to believe somebody that you else got, that you you got to fake it, it till you make it deal. Yeah, yeah. we're gonna have nudie suits anytime soon. Well, <laughs> see, you, for, in that in that ordeal, you have to actually be a star first because those yeah, things are expensive. Like, yeah, $10,000 or something. Once, if you get into it, having to wear them every night, you'd get out of that pretty quick. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not, and it never fails. You've got five outfits. One night, some guy's wearing the blue outfit and everybody else has got on so, the white right. outfit. So here's what I tell them all the time. Before I retire, 
one show. I, I, I know I won't make a dime. I'll probably go in a hole. But one show, I, I want to do the whole Elvis ordeal. I, I've got to have uh, at least one quartet singing behind me, at least a couple of uh, fiddle players and, ch- you know, some kind of fake orchestra, something. <laughs> I'm coming out in a white jumpsuit. You guys are going to be like, you know, in the blue cover on, whatever. Well, that, think, that'll be my last show. Tell you what, the band I've been in the longest is with Bill Kelly. I've played with him for years. It's me, Jim Gleason, Rex, Biz Bruckner, and Jill, his wife, and uh, Ricky sing uh, the backup. And we've actually done it even with quartets yeah. doing it. And it, it's the tightest band. Yeah. And you know, you know, that's the band. If you want to do it, we know every Elvis song. Well, I know. When John and I played, we did that thing over at, uh, was it Willie's? What was it? With Bob and Rex? Yeah, when yeah, Bob and Rex yeah. and we started doing all the Elvis stuff. And I, uh-huh. I was like, man, they, they do all the backup parts exactly <laughs> like Elvis guys. You know? I mean, Biz <laughs> is such an incredible keyboard player. He's got the horns and the keyboard, and you're yeah. rocking at the yeah. same thing. I mean, it was a really good. Yeah. Band, you know, and that's where I learned to appreciate Elvis. Yeah, I mean, we would go up, and I was I was a Beatle guy, and then once we went up and played all these county fairs and stuff, and I saw how much I mean, Elvis meant something. Yeah. to people when you played it. Yeah, I mean, and it, it you know it just made a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be the best at doing that. You were telling a story earlier before we got on there about you know having the the light bulb for your microphone and playing your guitar and stuff, and and I was the same way. I mean, I, I would. You know, I'd have the Elvis record on. I'd usually have, you know, somebody's hairbrush, and I'd have my yeah. hair all greased back, my shirt, you know, standing in front of the mirror just doing all that stuff. And, and it's cool, and I watch my son doing the same stuff. And isn't it great? Yeah, I mean, it's just great. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just, to me, certain people, music hits them a certain way. And you kind of know, it's like you said, from the time you were in the sixth grade, you knew what you wanted to be, and that's all you wanted yeah. to be. And I think that's the way it happens. It's just like a lightning bolt hits you one day, and that's yeah. okay. That, it, it's that way with everything. Yeah. You can be in the fifth grade, and you realize this kid's going to be a baseball player. Yeah. This kid's going to be a soccer player. I watched my Ian's daughter, who when she was six years old, watching them on a Thursday night live. And I could just see in her face she wanted to be up there. Yeah. And, you know, and she can say she should be on stage one of these yeah. days because I can just relate. I, I know what she's feeling, and you can I, you can see it. Here's a question I got for you. I've never asked any other musician this, but this this is this is a, a me thing. So, playing wise, since you got so much time that you put in, you play, and that's what you do. How do you do at concerts? Because I'm not necessarily a a, a con. I can't stand it. Like to watch a concert. Yeah. Even if it's somebody I love, because it, it I want to be where they're. Even though I can go do it. I, if I if Elvis came back today, it would eat me up to sit in a crowd and watch Elvis because I want to be up there right beside of him doing what it does. Does it does it affect anybody else that way, or is everybody else just like I can still enjoy concerts, but I don't enjoy them like everyone else does. Yeah, because I either am like you, I'm I'm jealous or I'm critiquing. But <laughs> well, yeah. you, usually, I'm a bit of a snub. <laughs> <laughs> or but uh, but I see what you mean. Oh, I think we all critique. We do that. I, I'm going to do that when I go see you guys play. Right. Yeah, with sure. every band yeah. say, you're going to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I appreciate the whole production of seeing a concert. But I just got to, when I saw the Eagles, and that was it for me. I'm yeah. not going to fight the crowds and park and do right. that anymore. It just doesn't mean that much. Right. 
But, uh, but at one point, being at the edge of that stage and watching any band it was the most important thing in my life. Yeah. See, I just, I, I could, now I could watch something on television. You know, I can watch like old clips of the Eagles, Elvis, whoever it is, and sit there and admire it for what it is. And God, man, look how great this is. Yeah. But if I was there in person live, mm-hmm. it would be eating me up that, that they're up there and I'm not. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think we all feel that way. Yeah. Uh, honestly. Then, well, you know, why them and not me up there? Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's crazy. So where'd you head after Showboat? After Showboat... We were uh, getting, you know, every band has a life expectancy, and we were coming to the end of it. And at that point, Breeding and I were real good friends, and the contract lounge was next door to the terrace room. So we would, you know, run over there on breaks and, you know, take silly string and spray everybody on stage (laughs) and run back out, and they would come back over and do something with us. And uh, I would get done playing at night, and I would go to Doug's house. And his wife at the time would get up and fix us breakfast and we'd drink beer for an hour or two and just listen to country music. That was my doorway into country music. Yeah. I didn't know country, really country at all. Right. So yeah. Doug exposed me to all of that. <laughs> and he also exposed me to a great friendship. Yeah. yeah. So we did that. And then it got to the point, he had played with Sonny Lemaire for years and Sonny had gone on the road and Sonny came back, and they reunited. And then Sonny got the call for Exile. Mm-hmm. And then, so, you know, when that happened, and Showboat was breaking up, so it was just real obvious that I would go there. Yeah. And at that point, it was just me and him. And I guess Rex was there at that point. There had been another drummer right before that. Yeah. So it was just the three of us for, you know, a long time. <clears throat> And then, you know, Ernie started coming in from Maysville, and we tried out, you know, a lot of different guitarists, and Ernie was just the guy. Yeah. You know, and so we went for that a long time, and by that time I was working in the studio, and I met Vince. He was on the road with the Gospel Couriers. And so when they were around, you know, we were always doing sessions, and he would stay at my house, and we became good friends. And so the bunch was starting to happen then. We had met uh, Harry Warner which was Jerry Reed's manager. And he uh, took us down to Nashville and we recorded a bunch of stuff. And we realized we needed another player. Mm-hmm. We needed a guy that played steel and the other guitar and everything. So then we added Vince and then we went on over, started Breedings, the new club. Right. And then it all just kind of went from there. See buddy. So I got a question. So like with you and Rex, I mean, it's always, you know, I've got the opportunity to play with you guys a couple of different times, at least a song or two here and there. Was was that, because, I mean, you know, between the bass player and the drummer, you got to have, like, I've had certain bass players tell me, you know, I, I really love playing with this drummer, you know, and you can play with any of them. <laughs> but was there a, just a, like a automatic chemistry there with you two guys or something that just... Or did you ever even think about it? No, I don't think so. I think that we were both mature enough and we had worked in the studio enough that we just realized that, you know, you listen to to each other and and you just play. You know, I played with Dwight Dunlap for years and Steve DiMartino for years, but Rex and I have a tighter bond musically than anybody anybody else. And, And so much of that is love and friendship 
and just haven't played together a million nights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, to me, I mean, that's that's a big thing. I mean, it's just like with me and him. A lot of the of stuff that I feel like goes on stage is is, is a lot more relationship driven. Oh, for sure. Than it ever is really musically. It, it, you could have the greatest player in the world standing next to you. If you can't get along with him, then no, it, you're not going to find the sound that you're wanting to get. But you could have, you know, people there, and, and if everybody's in it for the same reason, everybody gets along, has a good time, or having fun, I mean, you, you can find magic. The longest nights in the world are playing on stage with somebody, and you look at him and think, what a prick. Yeah. <laughs> you're trying to play with him, and it, it, yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you're just, you, you can't find that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been on stage and having a, a bass player and a guitar player on each side of me just, you know, cursing each other out behind my back while we're trying to play a show. Yeah. And it's just crazy. You said you were doing uh, sessions, I assume, at Limco. Were you uh, on staff there, or did you just mm-hmm. get called in every now and then? No. Uh, the band, this was an amazing time in Lexington. When I was in Showboat, and then when I was working at Limco, the staff band was... Um, Skaggs, Ricky was was there. But Bale was there. He had come down from New York just to learn, be around J.D. Crow. So, you know, he was there. Of course, Crow was there. J.P. was there. Phil Colton was there. I kind of replaced him because I would write jingles and play bass. Steve Lyon was the keyboard player. Steve Getzman was the drummer when I started. And then they kind of moved out because they started going on the road. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Rex came in, and then J.D. Miller kind of came in there too, and Vince kind of came in as the guitar player. So, you know, that was basically the band. And then around town, the bunch was playing, and J.D. Crow was out at Holiday Inn North with his group. Ricky Skaggs was someplace else. Exile came back off the road and was playing at the Rebel Room on Southland Bowling Lanes. We were out at Breedings at that point. I mean, it was just such a vibrant music scene yeah. at that time six nights a week oh yeah with everybody yeah. that's what amazes me is the amount of talent yeah. in this whole area like uh everyone has their idols but i've always looked up to local musicians almost more than say an eric clapton or whatever because they were touchable like i could see it i could go and watch it and there was an abundance of it there's always been an abundance of talent in this yeah. town but hearing you say that you know six nights a week Anywhere down the block, it's, that's just amazing. That's, yeah. yeah, I mean, you would just kind of bar hop. The big thing, people would come to the bunch out at Breedings and stay for half the night, then go over to the Rebel Room because Exile, because it was all mutual yeah. friends. I have a question about yeah. that. So, uh, your bass that you always play originally mm-hmm. came from JP, right? It was original Exile bass, yeah. I've never seen you play anything but that bass. I haven't played anything but that for years. Is there a story behind that, or you just fell in love with it? No, I had another uh, precision that I had for years, and I got out of playing when I had the entertainment agency, and I sold it, and then I got back playing again, and there was a guy who was playing bass with Doug, Dave Sheeler, at that time, and he had bought the bass, and it was in pieces, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think I bought it for $150, and took it home and tried to scrape everything off of it and uh, just put it together and put some Schecter hardware in it and been playing it for 25 years. I say, I've never seen you play anything else. And, yeah. and uh, I knew that it came from JP originally, and I just didn't know if there was a 
if there was any kind of special meaning behind it, or if it just played wonderfully, or there was because it seems like there's a when Exile was one of my favorite eras of Exile. They had uh, Bobby Jones. That's when Church Street Soul Revival and Devil's Fight. Are you old enough to remember any of those? Yeah, I know. I I mean, when when Exile came to your town, it was the biggest event that was going to happen. When he went to Club Sixty Eight, it was just packed. Did I ever tell you my Club 68 story? I've heard about it. You haven't told me any, but I've heard some. I, I, this is one of my favorite rock and roll stories. This is actually from Roger Bondurant. He was playing with a little hippie band called Nook and Cranny, and they were opening for Exile at Club 68. It's a rough club. You fought your way in, you fought your way out. So whenever they played, it was packed. It was a you know, the, uh, So sure enough, the band started playing. Fight breaks out in front, yeah. of the, in front of the stage. The band goes running back off into the dressing room. Phone on the wall rings. It's the owner of the club, Highland George. Boys, what are you doing? Well, Mr. George, they're fighting out there. Well, God damn it, get out there and play something they can fight to. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. That, that, that's a true story. I mean, that's... And, but- that that's that's yeah. that's the business. But, but fight the, breaks out, you don't stop. But, you just keep right on going. But that's Exile <laughs> was such a great rock and roll band at that time, and Kenny Weir was a fearsome bass player, long curly hair, high voice. I mean, he was just Breeding and I were talking about him the last week or two. He was the epitome of what rock and roll should be. Yeah, and uh, he was playing bass, and he wore rings, and he would thump it and beat it to death. And you can look at the bass and take off the pit guard, and it's just gouged all the way through <laughs> where he had done that. And I never filled him in. I thought it was just a cool... It looks like your guitar. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's what that guitar is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, something I've always wanted to ask, just out of curiosity, and after we had Doug on, made me really want to ask it, but when Doug got his bar, when he went into the bar business... What did the band feel about that? Because was it like, a, oh shit, he's going that way. Now are we not looking for a record deal now? Or are we just a band now? We were still looking for the record deal at that time. And he would have gone where we needed to go at that time. But he was tied in with JD and two other guys that owned the bar. So, and we were just, you know, we were side men. Yeah. You know, at that point, we were paid to be there. But we had to be paid to be somewhere. Right. I mean, and Doug didn't make us feel like, okay, now I own the bar and this is what we're going to do. JD actually handled most of all of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was tougher on Doug probably than any of us. Right. Because he yeah. truly was caught between the business and them and the band that yeah. we were fighting. You know, the, the business was saying, no, you got to do good hearted woman and everything. And we we're saying, no, we want to write this stuff. You know, it was a. Yeah. Uh, this was the shot, you know. We were in Nashville doing stuff and needed original, you know, music, and so it became tough at some points, but tougher on him, I think. I was just curious if you know, once he went down that road, which obviously he's still doing that, you know, it, it turned out successful for him. Oh, it's been great. But you know, did you all go, well, shit? You know, is the band? Are we just sidemen now? Or I didn't know if it affected your all's dream. You know what? Or the drive. Now, if something had really happened and it would cause him, okay, we have to go out on the road, what he would have done, I don't know because it never came to that point. Yeah. We always just assumed that he would. But, you know, yeah. who knows for sure. He seems like the type of guy that would have just 
kept his name in the business and got a different band to play while y'all were gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows? That's what I would have done. Who knows? Keep my name on the on the bill yeah. and <laughs> we're going to hit the road. Yeah, I know that they did really well for a long time. I mean, you were too young to be around there, but at that club, which probably 400 or something, I would think, Yeah. every night it was packed and on weekends, it was like a two-hour waiting list right. just to get in um, the club. Did uh, how close did you get to, to getting the deal? Uh, it, it came down between Harry Warner again was Jerry Reed's man, personal manager, and he came in and he liked the band and he took us down, yeah, to uh, several times. And you know, we recorded and we had our little demos. and I went to eat, um, to NGM, uh, Jerry, no, I went to Jerry Bradley. Uh, it's been so long, I forget the name, the president of, of RCA. And, you know, we played everything and we talked about everything. And it came down between us and Alabama. And Alabama had a record already recorded and paid for by a guy named Harold Shedd. And it was just, you know, well, you know, this, this is done. We don't have to pay we for anything. We don't have to do any work. We, we, this yeah. is it. You know, we can take this. And, uh, I don't know what ever happened to those guys. <laughs> <laughs> was, I'm trying to think. Now, Harold Shedd, I know. Harry Warner, I'm trying to... Harry was still... Both of those he, guys... He's still there. Both of those guys were still pretty big uh, names when I was down there in the you know, first part of the 2000s. I can't remember what they were doing. They weren't... I don't recall either one of them being involved with labels but they were like yeah. I think maybe Harry Warner may have been with BMI or something I think like that. I think actually he was I think and Doug right. was in Nashville within the last five years or yeah. something and he had lunch or met something with Kent Blasey yeah he'd yeah. been in yeah. Kent of course everybody knows everybody in Nashville and yeah. Kent knows Harry and he was saying oh yeah he's still out there you know oh, okay. we were together so you know he's yeah, it's, it's crazy how from, from that time to you know those guys are still just yeah, well, that's, you know, my friend Tony Conway that I mentioned earlier, he went down there with Buddy Lee and slept on couches, and his first job was being the guy to go around and tell the people at clubs that George Jones wasn't going to be there. <laughs> he said, you talk about a tough gig. <laughs> Man, yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't want he, that job. And he went on to become one of the, the biggest yeah. in Nashville, and along with that is Clarence Spalling, who used to be the manager at Breedings on New Circle Road, that he was a manager of Exile, the personal manager, and now then he's probably the biggest name yeah. in Nashville. I mean, so some guys from here have done really well. Done well, yeah. You dealt with Clarence, yeah. haven't you? I don't think so. I, mean, I, you I had. can't uh, I can't recall anything. But of course there's you know, there's a a span of a few years there I don't recall a whole lot of anything <laughs> anyway. So. Who knows, maybe. Well actually Wolf <laughs> we almost call him Wolf, but Clarence uh, when he went down there, he became the personal manager for Brooks and Dunn. And so he went from there to they started their own agency and handled right. all these people. And now then they put together this, about five years ago, this super agency that there's like five or six of them. And they handle probably 80% of all of the major artists. Wow. In the thing. I mean, it, it's... They've done very well. It's they, huge. Yeah. yeah, it's impressive. You're talking about writing your own songs uh, and the bars wanting you to play, you know the hits or whatever and you're wanting to do your songs what's your opinion on that because playing in a bar i've seen different it, it worked for some and it not worked for others and we usually know by the crowd what 
we're supposed to do, but you throw an original song in there, it could be the end of your career if you even try. And then some people can pull it off and do all originals. Like, do you have a, like, you, you, the show, basically, like you were talking about earlier, you put on the show, sometimes that means play what they want to hear. An original song is usually not right. on that list. So how did you squeeze that in? Well, number one, you got to make up your mind what you want to be. And I always consider playing in bars is minor league baseball. Yeah. You had to do that to get up to the majors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you're not going to play good-hearted woman all the time and get there. you got to show them what you've got to do it and have that material ready to show somebody else. Yeah. And if you play that material around, you know, at your home bar, and if they don't like it, it's probably not that good. So you have yeah. to learn I mean, I'm sure you've written a million songs that didn't get there before yep. you did Fly On and some of the great things that you write. Yep. So, I mean, it's, you know, I think you just have to decide I'm going to be a, a wedding band. I'm going to be playing the bars to give them what they want to do. Yeah. You know, make your money and go home. Or, you know, my goal was never to play in the bar forever. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get out as soon as I could. I wanted to get to that next level. And if it wasn't going to happen... Let me get out of the bar. Something oh. I've noticed recently, well, not recently, in the last you know, 10, 15 years with bands is you either have your, your wedding bands and your cover bands, and uh, there's very few that will play the bars and do a couple originals, but most of the people that do all originals and we're trying to make it are trying to play clubs where there ain't nobody there. Yeah, yeah, and I've oh, noticed it's a hard that, road. You know, do that. nobody wants to do the bars where there are people and test the waters first. I always yeah. feel like you said, the minor leagues, you want to test it out first, and they're all just let's hit the road now without a base yeah. audience. Yeah, <laughs> my thing, always, and they all fail. My thing always was with that that scenario was just like, just like Bob said, especially when I came up here, I already had it in my mind where I was going, mm-hmm. and. You know, it's like you were saying, the bars weren't in my mind. This is where I'm going to stay. But you also have to be hard-headed enough and, and, and determined enough that, you know, I'm going to shove these down your throat until you either love them or you run me out of this place, but you're going to hear my songs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've had so many uh, acts or artists come up to me over the years, you know, as I've gotten older, said, hey, man, you know, I want to play my stuff, and this bar owner's telling me i got to play top. I said, you tell that bar owner to go kiss your ass and play whatever <laughs> you want to play, because and if he don't like it, and that's what I always told you know, because I get that. Hey, you got to play more top 40. No, no. I'm yeah. going to play what I'm going to play. If you don't like what I'm playing, you tell me, and I'll go somewhere else and play it. Now, the other side of the coin is you're good, and you could get away with that. You know <laughs> how many bands that you've seen that write horrible songs and they don't do good original songs, right. and they just beat everybody to death. I mean, it's a horrible thing, and we've all seen those bands. You have yeah. to learn to know when to shut up, basically, sometimes. Well, yeah, your, I mean, you know, your original if you're going yeah. to make money doing it, you've got to give and take. you got to yeah. give them enough and try to sneak in things and try to get popular right. enough to do right. that. I mean, nobody deserves to walk in off the street to a club that's a pop club and say, here, listen to me. you got to give them a yeah. reason, yeah. you know, to, to listen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just, you, you saying goodbye time one time and people are going to listen to your next song. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Saying. You got to throw in a little candy every now yeah. and then. And, and, yeah. Yeah. I want to, I know we, we pretty much covered the bunch with Doug and 
your your span of people you've played with is really long, but I want to fast forward a little bit. Did you not get uh, play on a record that was nominated for a Grammy? Is that yeah. true? Yeah, yeah. Tell the, us about uh, that. The, the Blackwood Quartet. Is it bluegrass? Uh, gospel. Gospel, okay. Old gospel. I mean, they go back to the... Uh, the Oak Ridge Boys back when they were before they were the, the Oak Ridge Boys yeah. mm-hmm. and the Stamps and the Cathedrals. I mean, we're going back into the sixties yeah. of these bands, and they were the gospel bands. They did it all, and there was a studio in E Town that uh, had an engineer who had worked with at Alan Martin in Louisville, and he had come from California. They brought him in. And he was just great because he had worked with Toto, and you know, he you no, know, he was the music director on the Donnie and Marie show or something out there, and Toto was the backup band on that show. Wow. He had stories for days, yeah. and telling me he was telling me about the uh, oh come on the the big recording. Uh, it, who was the the group that recorded everything in in California? The, the Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Yeah, the Wrecking Crew. He was telling me stories about them before yeah. that was even really known. Wow. And telling stories about the Beach Boys. There was a group called the Scotty Brothers that came in and sang. You know a lot of the harmonies. I mean, you know, <laughs> and I'm just such a groupie. You know, I yeah. just would you know I would play for free just to hear his stories. But anyway, so they uh, Christian group kind of took it over and did a lot of gospel stuff. And then it turned out the engineer took all the money and broke the studio <laughs> <laughs> after that. But they brought in you know, a lot of people, and I did a couple with them, and uh, did one session with Amazing Rhythm Aces guitar player that was kind of yeah. cool. He brought people yeah. up from Nashville to do mm-hmm. stuff. They, they had a budget. And it was just, it was real interesting to go in and play with a gospel group that had a bass singer. Because you have to think as a bass player, I never thought about it. What you're going to do? Well, you're gonna I mean, play. you can't get in his way. You're going to be stepping on each You've other. You've got to, you know, he, he comes first. Never would have so even thought about it, it. Yeah, it was real interesting. Mm. Doing that. Wow. The best record I ever played was uh, John Deere Tractor. Oh man, he that was done at, at Limco. I can't believe I can't think of his name. Uh, and then they were doing it, and that was one of, I don't know if there had been many electric basses on bluegrass records yeah. at that time. That was before Steve Bryant played with J.D. Crow, and that was real early on. Yeah. Oh, that breaks my heart. I can't think of his name because I know it. And uh, they had recorded, Lemco was a big bluegrass because of J.D. Crow and everybody and people who came in there and recorded. Yeah. And they had the album done, and there was this one song on there, and I hope that you would go back tonight and listen to John Deere Tractor. The Judds did a version of it, but uh, this guy, he's still out there in bluegrass. I mean, he's uh, one of the patriarchs of the old bluegrass, and they didn't like what the upright bass player had played, and I got engineered with the session, and I said, can I try a park? And they said, well, yeah, you know, come in tomorrow, we'll yeah. do it. So I went home and I worked up all this fancy stuff. And I sat there in the engineer room. They're all sitting around just like this. And I played. You talk about a tight butt. <laughs> With them looking. And, and I played just as simple as you could play it. And, and it worked. 
you know, and they they liked it, and uh, without a doubt, that's the best wow. song that I, that I ever played recorded on. Yeah, that's crazy. I have a feeling we're gonna have to bring Bob back for a round yeah, two because there's a lot of stuff that we haven't part covered. Part twos coming up. We might that that might be the next two or three weeks. Yeah. Just part twos of everything. Uh, yeah, the next time I'll tell you where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we're there's only time for about two more questions, but uh, you know we're still missing Daddy's car. We want to talk about the squirrels. I mean, there's so many things. Um, but before we get to that, tell us about how uh, now you're playing. With Richardson. With Jim Richardson. Tell us about that and where we can find you, because uh, you're uh, playing this weekend, I believe, right? Well, this Friday night, we're going to be at Henry Clay's. We always play there about once every four to five weeks. And uh, we do it with Jim and I. And then we add either uh, guitar player Jim Gleason and uh, we have Wanda Barnett on fiddle sometime. Mike Howard, who was original exiled mm-hmm. guitarist, plays with us. Uh, yeah, we just bring in that other person to do it, and it's a we call it a conversation. We sit there for two hours, and we play, and, and we just talk, almost yeah. kind of like what we're doing right here. We tell stories. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, it's fun. And uh, Doug had talked about you know being a house band for so long, you didn't do a whole lot of traveling, uh, but I know you've done some. Um, I always ask everybody, what's your favorite place you've played? And what is your bucket list that if you could play anywhere, where would you play? Well, uh, I don't have one. And I didn't travel enough. I made the decision, once I knew I wasn't going to be a Beatle, that I knew I didn't want to be a backup player. I wanted to raise my kids and stay at home. So, you know, the places that I played were just clubs and other towns. None was any better. I mean, playing at Breedings was as easy. You know, yeah. good as any place, and playing at Henry Clay's right now makes me as happy as any Just place. Just as good, yeah. yeah. We, we've talked about that a million times, about sometimes playing to 10 people is more fun than Absolutely. playing. I mean, Best nights a little more I've ever intimate. Yeah. or snow nights or nights where there's nobody there. And you get intimate with the crowd. Right. And you just talk to them and you play what they, you know, yeah. you connect yeah. in a way that you can't when you're playing for 300 people. Yeah. So, so if you could pick anywhere to play. Pick anywhere to play. Dream, dream venue. Nothing on your... Uh, no, I really, really don't have one. You know, the next place I play. The next place I play, yeah. it doesn't matter, just play. You know, the one thing I do want to throw in here, we'll be out there on uh, November the 3rd. Mm-hmm. We're doing downtown. It's the, called the Local Legends. George is going to be there. Doug Green, Greg Austin, Johnny Lyman. Uh, I'm probably missing somebody. Uh, Jim Richardson. And so, you know, we're doing, you know, the show there. Uh, one person that's sorely missed, and I wish Nick Stump could be there. Oh, yeah. Because he certainly belongs in that line. Yeah. But that's the next fun thing. Did you ever play with Nick? Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I knew Brex did for a little bit. I didn't know if you did or not. Never in a real band. Yeah. But just, you know, he would sit in with the Frigidaires and stuff that, you know. Right. That's one thing I want to talk about real quick before we're done. Almost every episode we've had so far has CCI mentioned. Yeah. And that's when I really got to know you is going down and hearing either the Frigidaires or the Squirrels playing at CCI when you might have an 11-piece band in this little corner. (laughs) And I'll never forget the first gig that I booked there with George. So excited because I'd gone to see you guys play a million times. And I was like, 
oh, you're going to have the best time. It's great. And I was like, they have these big bands and all this. And we went in, just the two of us, and I was crowded. And I'm like, how do they do this? <laughs> like, we couldn't figure out how to set up and not be, like, in each other's way. And I was like, how the hell do they do this? And it was a puzzle. I mean, everybody knew it had to be, yeah. you know, I sat down. That's when I started sitting on a stool. Yeah. Just because of that, because I had to sit with my head down below the soundboard. Yeah. Up there. We, so, yeah. We did that, and I think we took, uh, we had one of those Bose towers, yeah. and we put it back there, and I didn't know at the time until we set the PA up that the floor was crooked, and that tower just sat there and did this. <laughs> but, but one night, we had gotten done playing, JP, who hadn't drank at all, and maybe he hadn't drank for the night, but he hadn't, he wasn't right. drunk or anything at all, he was standing back of the stage, and he just started tilting, <laughs> totally, but the stage was so crooked, yeah, it just fell. The CCI was like the terrace room. All the stories you ever heard of the terrace room, mm-hmm. it was a small room that created so much energy that it was just, everybody thought this was the greatest room in the world yeah. because it was so energy. Yeah. And CCI always, was that way. Yeah, I've always loved playing there. I mean, it's just, I, I don't, only one time I've ever played there I've ever come out of there sober, and that was the last time I played. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those places for me, it's just, and I don't know what it is, it's not, I've got like two places, that place in Austin City. And mm-hmm. I think it's because I spent so much time in Austin City that way. Well, that old saying, that you know, that, that, that you know, you know, a place can soak up history and that it's in the walls. Like, I think that's, yeah. a, that's a very good example of there's just a vibe in that place that you just feel it when you're there, you know, especially if the crowd's there and they're yeah. ready to go. It all comes together and you just, yeah. it's hard to, to have a bad show. It there. is. Man. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, the first show that, uh, that I told John, I said, you know, I said, I think I'm, I'm just going to cut out, you know, just drinking anything at all while we play gigs and stuff. And, and I thought that was a great idea. And like the first thing he said, well, we got CCI this Friday night. I'm like, damn. <laughs> as, as soon as I walk in, I'm like, man, why did I pick this week to start? I saw on Facebook, you cut down your beer. I have. You lost a lot of weight. I can, I've, I can I've, lost, I've lost about 26 pounds. Right Good for now. you. So I've cut my beer back. I'm walking two and a half, three miles a day. I do too. And, uh, I'm getting ready to start. You, you, you were telling me about yoga at one point. We were talking about it, so I, I'm thinking about getting into that because I still got to work the the old bones and the muscles. Oh yeah. The morning, so I didn't stay with that, but just different stretches and stuff. Yeah. You know, you got to do. You know, I play a lot of golf, and if you're yeah. gonna do that, I mean, you gotta. Well, I mean, I know as I, if I, as I've gotten older, and you know, I've tried to explain this to my wife. She doesn't understand it at all. But when when you're up there playing music especially in my position where I'm singing and, and the way I sing, I mean, I sing hard, you yeah. know, I, I don't, everything in me is strained and, and hurting and, and done when I'm done. And, you know, at 50 years old, I feel it a whole lot more. Oh, now. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons why, because I noticed when I did start cutting back and not drinking, how bad I hurt at the end of the night. <laughs> I said, I could have at least saved this for in the morning if I'd been drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. But yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to, to feel better. And yeah. I well, lot, you know what? It's nice to live longer. Yeah. And you take absolutely. care of, you know, we, we get, we get one body and how we take care of yeah. it's going to determine. I, I mean, I hit 50. I, there's no lie about it. Probably three days after I turned 50 years old, I, I literally think I started falling into some kind of depression and, and anxiety kind of thing. You know, the thought hits you, Hey, I've already lived longer than yeah. probably what I'm going to live. I'm not going to live another 50 years. No, you know, it's true. So it's just like, you got to start doing something or, you know, I'll get all of it I can. 
at yeah. least feel good what, what time I got left. Well, so. we, we made the best of it what we could. We had. We had. <laughs> there's still more to go. What time you all got left, make sure and go see Bob Goff play with whoever it is he's playing with because it's always going to be a good yeah. show. Thanks for being on here with us, Bob. Thank you for having me. This, this has was been fun. fun. Yeah. And uh, as long as we're not canceled by season two, we'll have you back <laughs> and, and, and try to get all the, all the rest of your stories in. But uh, thanks again. Uh, this has been Weekend Superstars. I'm John McHugh. I'm George Moulton. You've been listening to Bob Goff. And uh, he will be at Henry Clay's Public House Friday night. Friday night. This coming 10. Friday at 8 to 10 and uh, with Jim Richardson. And it's going to be a show. So uh, till next time, we'll see you guys later. Thank you so much. Hey everybody, that concludes today's episode with Bob Bullet Golf. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure and check us out on Facebook. Go and like our page, follow us. Find us on Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere else that you get your podcast. Till next time, we'll see you all later. Thank you all so much, and we'll see you next week.